Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 59 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters on this episode is UK golf. From the Open of a fortnight ago to the Women's British Open this week, and a bunch of architectural observations in between. There are no guests on this episode because my two co-hosts are both worthy guests in their own right, and both will no doubt have some fascinating and worthwhile insights into golf in the part of the world where it was born. Without further ado, let me bring in my esteemed colleagues, writer, blogger, you know the rest, Jeff Shackelford. Back on US soil, but Scotland, no doubt, still coursing through the veins, Shack. Very much. It's uh, it was hard to leave. Let's put it that way. It was. It's uh, it's just. It's the best place on the planet if you love the game and uh, got to see some amazing things in two weeks. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to hearing about all of that as well. Of course, about uh, the Open at St Andrews, still in the UK, about to jump on the bag for Sue O, one of Australia's most promising young players at the Women's British Open at Turnbury is Mike Clayton. Clayton's this week just the end of what's been, judging by your Twitter feed, a pretty amazing couple of weeks for you. I've seen a lot. I've been up and down the country, really. Went, I got down to London from the Open on Wednesday night and saw some stuff down there. But pleasing to report at 5.52, there's blue sky through the window in hey. air this morning, which is, boy, it's been <laughs> the only time you see blue sky in these sort of summers is getting an aeroplane and fly up through the clouds, and you'll see it then, but... But there's blue sky this morning, so hopefully the weather's going to be nice this week. Well, it looked vile on that photo you tweeted of Kari, Suo, and Stacey Keating. They looked to be shivering in their rain suits, so it didn't look well, too pleasant, so that's a nice change. Well, the two of them walked in that my boss <laughs> ploughed on from the 14th, which was impressive because it was awful. Yeah, well, the but, uh, the impetuousness of youth and all of that sort of stuff, I guess, Clates. Let's, uh, let's go back before we go forward. I'm really looking forward to what Turnberry's going to... Uh, offer this week and looking forward to your thoughts on the course and what you've seen of it so far. But let's go back firstly, I want to start with you, Shaq, to St. Andrews. And if I said to you, 2015 Open Championship, what's the first thing that springs to mind as far as a memory of what unfolded at the old course? Uh, the great finish, for sure, because uh, you never know. It was looking, it seemed like it went on forever, first of all, to get to Monday. And uh, obviously, there's a little bit of bitterness on on the a part of many people who were there that Monday had to even happen because it it sounds like it was not the uh, it, it was something that could have been avoided but that said all right fine the RNA did the right thing by playing just 18 on Sunday and 18 on Monday so that you could have the the finish that we ended up having and it was it was a compelling finish there are so many things to kind of contemplate from it um, and I, I tried to answer a few of those in a blog post after playing the course because the answers kind of surprised us after we got to play the final round hole locations. Um, but great finish, thrilling. I thought the quality of the golf in the playoff was even good. Usually playoff, playoffs are poor. So uh, it was, it, it, to me, it was, it was uh, all you can hope for in terms of uh, excitement at the end and a chance with uh, the Grand Slam on the line. For Jordan Spieth to continue it, and he and he just came all so close. Yeah, made the putt you wouldn't have expected on sixteen. Missed the one you would have expected him to make on seventeen. It had everything to finish, didn't it? There was no. Yeah, though we we uh, we tried that putt uh, when we played the golf course, and it was it was shocking how hard the ball snapped at the hole to the right uh, for Jaime Diaz, who tried it the most. And so we we kind of had more sympathy for him in missing that putt. We had much less sympathy for his uh, plight, uh, for what he did on the eighth hole, which was was uh, was just awful. I mean, it was just. But I mean, he's he's 
he was 21. He's now 22, but he was 21. He had a pretty much a, a almost flawless week, and he just had one moment that was uh, indescribably bad, and it cost him the tournament. Mm, well, one, one, I think it was his first mistake for the year, wasn't it? In fairness, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's been pretty good. You want to say, well, it was it was it was a mistake of the way he hit the putt on a level that was. It was was uh, almost comically bad how how horrible the putt was. But then you say, "My gosh, he's just done so little wrong that you can't really uh, fault it or, or criticize him." It's just more of a shock that somebody who's that good of a putter had that kind of a. Um, there's a there's a description for it. I just don't really feel like it's appropriate for this fun. <laughs> just on that, Clay, it was interesting that puzzle because I, I I thought back to when we had Jeff Ogilvy on the show prior to going there, and he was talking about. And I think he spoke on Huggy's podcast as well about practicing long, long putts. You have longer putts at St Andrews, uh, the old course, than uh, anywhere else in the world. Just and I don't know that there's anything in it, but interesting to note it was a super long putt, a freakishly long putt that perhaps brought Spieth undone in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, well, talking about mistakes, I mean, interestingly, the, the other big mistake he made that that nearly cost him the US Open was a double bogey on a seemingly simple par three, the 17th hole. So two simple par threes really could have cost him an awful lot. It did cost him a lot in the end, but you know, he made that awful double at 17 at Chambers Bay as well at a critical time. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, you get crazy long putts at now. So Jeff, in fact, I hold one from, it was over 100 feet on the fifth hole the first day. But he had one the second day from, it had to be 150 feet long. I mean, how do you putt 150 feet? It's just, you know, if you get it within 20 feet, it's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, you, 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 I think you wrote about this, Jeff, and we got a few, I, I read a few bits and pieces about this, that, that the Monday, for all the fact that it went into Monday and that was a bit of a disappointment, et cetera, but the atmosphere at the event itself on the Monday, they said, was the best of the week. <laughs> Ten-pound ten ticket prices, yeah. a lot less booze flowing around and a far more golf yeah. sort of atmosphere. You know, I walked around and and Clates and I walked a few holes with Jeff Ogilvy on that Monday, and it didn't really occur. It, it occurred to me something was a little bit different in the air, but I couldn't. I, I just didn't spend a lot of time on it. And then a couple of different people I talked to the next few days all pointed out that they either heard or they were there and they noted how well behaved the crowd was, what a positive energy they felt because there were so many more kids and families at that price and parking was free and all that and um, and all the corporate stuff had kind of shut down and moved on. And and a few of the ESPN photographer uh, cameramen actually were the ones who pointed it out to some locals uh, in one case that they noticed it. They noticed a huge difference, no obnoxious uh, calls or heckling or whatever you want to call it. And it's just fascinating. So the combination of, of almost no alcohol being available – and this lower price attracting families um, and a lot more kids, I thought, even though kids, I believe, were included in the price. But the price was 80 pounds for the tournament. <clears throat> and that just priced out so many uh, just just kind of classic, typical golf fans. And there were a number of people in the village, uh, or excuse me, in the town of St. Andrews you talked to who, who work at uh, various places. And you'd ask them if they were going, and they... They said, "Well, no, I'll go walk down and watch from the 18th hole on on Links Road, but I won't I won't be able to pay because it's just too much." Best best price ticket in sport, perhaps in history. Clates ten pounds to watch the final round of an Open at St Andrews. It's a bargain, isn't it? Yeah, well, we had the same experience. I mean, we were walking at Pamir on Tuesday, Wednesday night, and 
we asked these four guys if they were going to watch the golf. They said, no, it's way too expensive. Now, just four local Scottish guys who were not that far away, and no, it's way too expensive. So, I mean, 80 pounds is a lot, I think, for a day. And, you know, it seems to me like it's a lot. It's 160 Australian dollars. If you charged 160 Australian dollars to watch the Australian Open, you wouldn't get a single person to go. But. God, no, not a chance. Even the media wouldn't turn up. Um, what were the crowds like, though, in light of that, Jack? The expensive on TV, they looked to be, but of course, St Andrews is not the best. Uh, on-site spectator experience, as we know, just because of the nature of the, the ground. But was was it full? Were there a lot of people there, or did you think the crowds were down? They were down the previous two years, weren't they? Yeah, there was nobody there in the practice rounds. It was very light. And then it uh, uh, picked up very nicely uh, all, all, all tournament days. And then, obviously, Saturday was the, the, the wind day, and uh, it was a beautiful day, huge crowd. And, of course, everybody had to go to the, the, the town and just go shop and eat and drink and kill time and it was uh too bad they were playing golf everywhere else around there but but not at st andrews and uh that was that, that was you, sad you 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 ripped them lots of people ripped them huggy ripped them loads of journos were ripping them for the speed of the greens just being too fast from some of the little videos that some of the journos posted so ben everill uh, posted some some footage from the press center it sounded like the town was going to blow away how strong was the wind was it in all sense was it reasonable that you might think about calling off some golf when there's something more on the line than just a $5 bet with your club mates you play with every week? Well, I wasn't out early when the uh, the real wind was going on and, and, and players were restarting on the back nine. I uh, wisely chose to uh, stay in bed and turn on the television at 7, and, of course, I watched and laughed uh, and, 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 and then kind of cringed as it continued. Um, but I immediately went out and got got together and got out there, and it was it was a very windy day. A uh, few people on Twitter have tried to to suggest it was a historically windy day. It just it just wasn't. I mean, it just I went around and asked locals, "Is this is this extreme?" And they'd say, "No, this is a windy day, and you can play golf in this, and it's sunny, it's pleasant temperature, and." So, and then, I, you know, that's when I started calling the local courses. And, and, I mean, one of the pros just laughed at me. He goes, what do you mean? Why would we be, why would we stop? It's a beautiful day. It's windy, but it's more than playable for golf. And, and then he said, but we, do, we just don't have our greens fast enough for it to be a problem. And that was ultimately the only reason they, they had to stop play there was just because the, the, the greens were just too quick. Clates, what was your take? You're, you've obviously played loads of events and seen events called off for all sorts of different things. What was your take on the wind? On the, uh, well, the Saturday morning, John Hopkins is a rules of it, but the chairman of Golf Australia, he was officiating there. He made the point, which I thought was reasonable, was that the forecast on Friday was a hundred percent chance of rain. So they put the pins on the high spots, and then of course by Saturday the pins were on the high spots, and it was blowing. It was blowing. So um, I'm sure that contributed something because if they put the pins in the low spots to keep them out of the wind, they probably would have been fine. But that have been flooded out on Friday early on, which they were anyway, actually. But so it was a combination probably of the speed of the greens and the fact they'd placed the pl- the pins for the rain. And once the rain had gone, the wind came, and then then they were in the more exposed parts of the greens. I guess I'm, you know would be my, my only comment, but of course the greens. Yeah, are- but. What I learned sticking around town the week after was was kind of depressing in that. Uh, uh, the, the, the scuttlebutt from a lot of the people who, who I, I trust uh, was that the, the greenkeeper not only didn't want to mow the greens on the rain day, Friday, uh, he didn't want to mow the partial set of greens that he was forced to mow on Saturday 
because he knew his golf course. He knew how it would react to the the wind forecast, which I mean the forecasters were absolutely spot on the entire week. That wind that they they had they said it was coming, it came and and he knew that he knew his greens, he knew his golf course and he was reportedly uh, overruled, and I believe it. It just didn't it, yeah. for somebody who's been through two previous stoppages in play. Uh, it doesn't surprise me one bit that he he was able to anticipate, and and um, the RNA didn't didn't agree. It, it, running a golf tournament is obviously not an exact science, is it, Jeff? We probably should cut people a little bit of slack. You can't be expected to get it perfect every time, and it was it was uh, yeah, but uh, just a third third event in a row at that golf course and that, that has had a stoppage and, and Peter Dawson uh, made a mess of the 11th green uh, in the name of being able to play in high winds and of course what was the first green that was not playable was the 11th and, and also the 13th which they did cut which was a huge mistake but the 11th was still unplayable and, and he also admitted that they were treating it differently which he had said was uh, something that, that they absolutely would not do and was one of the justifications for redoing the green. And then they, of course, he revealed that they were treating it dif- differently. And they did a, they did an absolutely awful job on the green uh, redoing it. And Clayton and I looked at it a little bit. It, there's nothing wrong with the, the way they changed the tilt of the green. That was fine with today's speeds, fine. But the tie-in work around it just awful. So it has this little this little berm around the, the the back left pin that they softened, and it just doesn't look like anything else on the property. Um, so all that, that that took place, all that um, screwing around with the old course ended up being completely uh, useless, really. And uh, so hopefully they learn their lesson from that, and they will they will not do it again. Thoughts on the changes while we're on it? I mean, I think the tournament itself has been talked right through. You know, we all know what happened, and it was it was interesting in terms of watching sort of golf unfold. But the course itself is more broadly far more important than the professional game, isn't it, Jeff? You had a chance to have a close look at. I saw a couple of the posts on the blog. The seventeenth, the bunker on the seventeenth didn't find favour with you. But what about the bunkers on the second and some of the other bits and pieces they'd mucked around with? <clears throat> well, they never put the hole right behind the two new bunkers on number two. Uh, so that ended up being a, a non-issue. Uh, I don't know if that was whoever was doing the setup sending a little message to uh, Peter about what, Dawson, what he, they thought of his his effort. But I, I was just floored that they never uh, used the hole right behind his new bunkers. The uh, the fourth hole bunker, I hit it in during my round, so you can imagine what kind of... Uh, <laughs> I, I tipped the caddy a little bit extra just for having to listen to me uh, complain about that moment. I almost got up and down, but it was just still, I was like, oh, geez, it's fitting that I hit it in there. So um, now the more disappointing thing, frankly, is just, again, that there, there is just too much rough out there. And Clates and I looked at it and we were walking around. And it's hard to explain to people. It's funny when you say to people, well, you know, if you just widen this out, it would it'd look even more elegant, more beautiful. And they, they just can't. Well, yeah, but why? I mean, that doesn't. That really won't impact the play, and yeah, it's 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 just it's beneath the old course. It goes against the original uh, concept that that made it so special. When you when you know what Tom, old Tom Morris did to widen it out, and the way the rabbits just kind of moan uh, would mow the turf, and you would have these random areas of turf and bunkers, and and people would whap a ball around on it. Uh, it 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 has just taken on a little too much of a man made. Uh, uh, vibe to it is my view. I mean, it's still great. It's still amazing to walk, but you just like a lot of American courses. You could see a, a good architect coming in and just doing, 
<clears throat> excuse me, some little touch-up work to make it uh, more what it what it was kind of uh, meant to be. Mm. Clades, you're intimately familiar with the the old course, of course, and I know it's uh, it holds a special place in your heart. You would have been keen to get there and see firsthand the changes. What was your take on your first sort of trip around of what has been what's been changed there? Well, again, the rough. I mean, right of the twelfth hole is you know that's a legitimate place to hit the ball down the right, and that's ran the rough. I mean, Jeff hit it in there, I think, deliberately the first day, made a three out of it, but it should be fairway. And, you know, there's. I mean, what's the point of hell bunker now? No one ever goes anywhere near it or in it, let alone in it, because the whole thing's surrounded by a massive long grass and just, you know, the, there's just that mess down there around that bunker now. That ridge left of the road hole bunker. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how much that changed. That ridge left of that road hole bunker looked kind of silly in an attempt to try and feed bulls into it, and I barely saw anyone in it all week anyway. So. You know, again, I agree with Jeff, there's way too much rough there. But, you know, it goes back to the, we all know what it goes back to. Mm, yeah, well, <laughs> that's right. Mentioned once or twice during the course. Of course, just on the rough, it looked a lot better this time on TV, Clates, than what we saw last time was there, particularly the rough down the seventh, the left of the 17th, which I seem to recall Paul Casey having an air swing in there in 2010. There was nothing even approaching that this time around. It was much thinner than the last time we saw it, it seemed to me. Well, it was playable out of there, but the shocking thing to me was with that new tee that these guys are now playing it down the second fairway. No one ever hit it down the second fairway. Now, you know, it seems like it's a legitimate shot to hit it down that left hand, down the second fairway, because that angle on that tee shot's changed so much that they just hit it down the second, which is it's an awful concept to me of playing that hole. So I've uh, been pondering that, and I have a, I have a, a kind of a theory, and it's I'm, I'm not able to explain it very well, so bear with me. But because we talked about that, I mean, Jordan Spieth played it there, Zach Johnson played it down number two, and I'm starting to I, I, I'm just wondering if because especially as Rod pointed out, the rough you could bail into that rough left and easily advance the ball somewhere near the green. I saw no area over there where you'd get an, a truly awful lie, which I loved about it. It was the way it should be. But I'm starting to wonder, Clates, if there is some sort of little uh, kind of groupthink element that goes into the way caddies and players uh, play a course and that somehow it kind of spreads and there's a mindset, well, if you advise your guy to play it this way, you can't be blamed for him losing the tournament. And I because I'm trying, I'm trying to rationalize why people were playing that hole that way. People who are some of the best <laughs> players on the planet, not us, uh, not not people like me who are you know hit it all over the place, but guys who know where the ball is going. And, and that's the only thing I could come back to is that that there's sort of a caddy yard mentality of, uh, of of the right way to play the course and the wrong way. And if you tell your guy to play it this supposed right way. Uh, you're covered. You're safe. And I'm not knocking the caddies, but I just think it's the nature of the kind of the the stakes that are that are in play and the pressure involved in the game. That that something like that that sort of right way to play the 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 game kind of mentality might be uh, influencing this. I don't know. It's what do you think? Well, so you're saying that it's the fear of blowing the thing into the hotel that just flies them all left. I think it's the fear of of well of a caddy telling a player to, to go on a certain line, the caddy hitting it out of bounds and saying, well, why the hell didn't we just blow it over on the second fairway or blow it into the rough and wedge on? And I mean, I, because I, I, it just was such a strange way to play that hole. Yeah. 
Well, it's completely anti the strategy of the starting of the green. I mean, you've got no shots from out there at all. I mean, you're taking, yeah, you, well, yeah, you've well, you're not absolutely settling for a one putt par, but you, it's incredible. I mean, no one's ever played it over there before. I mean, how much of it do you think was the change of angle on the tee shot with that silly back tee they've had to build that's, that used to be out of bounds? I'm not sure if it's still out of bounds, but that, that, that tee way back on the left that it changes the angle enough to force them out there. Yeah, I just don't remember many guys doing it the last time when there was more rough there, which would have it would have made more sense in 2010 when the when the rough left of the the fairway was so dense and somebody was just intentionally avoiding that. Um I I don't know. Very it was it was peculiar. It didn't cost speed uh the open. It was just a peculiar, and 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 I, you know, when he played it too, the wind was just brutal on Sunday. He he got the worst. And I think that's the other thing. It's amazing. He misses winning by one, and he got some of the worst win. And and but you know, Zach Johnson shot and Mark Leishman both shot sixty six in very difficult conditions as well. And uh, those rounds are just when when you see how tucked most of those holes were, how few were accessible. That score is just incredible there. Leishman's last two rounds were phenomenal, weren't they? Clay, 64-66 on a weekend at the Open. Is, is, it wasn't really a surprise he ran out of birdies come the playoff time, was it? That was phenomenal golf, really. Yeah, yeah, he was, he's, a good, he's, a, he's a really good player. Yeah, his coach, actually, he's, he's staying with us this week. He, who, he also coaches Sue O, and he, he, he was... I mean, Leishman's, we were talking about him last night. He's an incredibly underrated, sort of unnoticed, underrated Really good player. I mean, he had a chance to win that Masters that Adam Scott won. He made seven at 15, I think. He was he was fourth in the Open last year. And he's quietly become, he's quietly become a really good player. He's a better player than his results suggest. That's He hasn't won as much as he should have with the game that he's got. But a little bit like Jason Day, he tends to step up in the big events. He's, you know, some of his yeah. best results have come at the hardest tournaments. Um, yeah, he's got a really good record in the majors. Yeah. He's got, well, he's just got such a great demeanour, Clayton. So nothing yeah, phases yeah. him. He's, a, he's one of those flatliners who just looks like nothing bothers him. I'm sure it does, but he seems to Well, enough about one sort of individual player. On the 17th hole, Clayton, it's one of the most fascinating stretches of golf land on the planet. You've just been talking about it there. It seems that the, pl- the best players in the world be it because of the new tee or we're all extremely defensive. I think, well, there's a handful of birdies made at the hole over the course of the entire week. Just maybe some thoughts about, um, you know, was it feasible for anybody to think about trying to make three late on Monday afternoon, as it turned out, had they needed to, or is it just out of the question on the 17th, the way it sets up now? Well, I mean, no one ever has. Yeah. I mean, who can remember last time someone made a birdie on that hole? I mean, David Graham had an incredible shot at a Dunhill Cup in, 85 or 86 to 5 under a couple of feet but I mean no one can remember anyone making three at that hole when they had to really I mean I mean, maybe someone has but I mean we made a birdie the second day of the left rough which was one of three that day um, none it's just the not first day. yeah none the first day none not a single birdie the first day so so it's just you know it's a, it's a hole that falls a, falls the score you're trying to make and that's what you make because three's almost out of the question it's a real par four, and it's probably harder to make three there, Jeff, than on most par fives the players face week in and week out on the PGA Tour. It really is. Uh, it's it's, uh, and then when the the hole is tucked the way they tuck it, um, it it uh, it's almost impossible. I mean, every every I saw Adam Scott hit the most beautiful shot in there, and he still had about a 
15 footer. And I actually got to ask him about it in the press conference. He just lit up because uh, it was it was just one of those shots. It, he hit it low. He ran it in. It just it just was so such a work of art to watch. And uh, but you know he still has a 15 footer, one of the best players in the world, hitting exactly the way he wanted. And I, I would love to see them just uh, at least on that green. At least just give them one hole location that that's just really tempts them to to go at it and bring them. I mean, the road really just got very little action because of the way they set it up. Uh, it just almost had people laying up short all the time. Where would you put yeah. a flag to do that, Jack? Yeah, just you can you can put it to the right of the the road hole bunker a little bit, right in the middle, and um, not tuck it near the tiers and different things. And it's it's. Uh, it's just not that that complicated. We saw almost nobody go left of the road hole bunker this year. I mean, it's not—it's never been the most popular shot. But you usually see a few people take on that line. Um, wasn't as many of that. It didn't seem this year, Jeff. A couple of people did the first day, but they—that was the rationale apparently for the the uh, the large berm they've they've attached to the road hole bunker. I didn't really see how that would discourage that play because of the way the game is played now through the air, but. Uh, somebody got it through their head that that was a great way to modify the hole. And, and of course, it's just so uh, antithetical, the whole uh, old course democratic approach to play. And um, I need to go and find the write-up where Bobby Jones talked about it. Uh, he used that route, but he was inspired by, uh, and I think, Clates, we discussed this. It was either Roger or Joyce Weatherett he first saw do it. And um, and he loved that about the course that there was a, a longer way to the hole, but maybe the smarter way. And um, you know, to try and discourage that uh, to me is just so just shows it just shows how little uh, either either how little the person doing the work gets the old course, or how determined the person was to mask. Uh, the real issue at hand, or some combination, combination <laughs> of, of the two. Did, did yeah. Faldo make three from over there on day two? Three or four? He holds something from just off the green over there. I think he took that route. It was either a three or a four. Yeah, I'm not sure if he intentionally took that route. <laughs> no, maybe not. <laughs> but that but, is how he ended up taking, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that's exactly. Just on that, I suppose it was uh, the Tom Watson. Were you guys there for Tom Watson's farewell? Clates, did you get to, to see that as a player? No doubt you'd hold him in pretty high esteem, a, a great achiever in the event over the years. Was it? Special to watch? Uh, well, I, it was at 10 o'clock at night. I was back at the house, so no, I didn't see it. But, um, yeah, it was, I mean, great record, incredible, really. Yeah. We're here at Turnberry this week where there are some awful attempted paintings of the Nicholas and Watson thing where they just put the photos up. The photos are great, and some guys have tried to make a painting out of the photo, and they're predictably awful, but that's okay. It's the little nuggets you get, isn't it, Shaq, from Clates? Yeah, you just I'm, don't get I'm from gonna, others. <laughs> I'm much more interested. I, I haven't seen a good photo yet of the uh, the hideous fountain that's been installed oh, at Tesbury. Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. It's <laughs> beyond belief. Because we went on the way back to where we're saying, if you go to the coast road, there's a – Colleen Castle is there. We, uh, we dropped in there on the way home because Sue was so desperate to see a castle. And this is an amazing castle on the rocks on the sea, and there's the most beautiful English garden with the coolest water feature right in the middle of it. It's like, you know, eight, eight miles down the road, there's the most hideous whatever that thing is out the front of the clubhouse. It's beyond belief how ugly. How, Wait, so, 
Oh, I see it now. I just found it on Twitter. Oh, this is what, there's like some Roman soldier at the top or something. It is, <laughs> it, it, you couldn't imagine anything with less class than a. Well, it's, I mean, okay, in Florida maybe, but way in Scotland. I mean, wow. Be like Clive Palmer buying one of the great courses of the world, wouldn't it, Clive? <laughs> uh, well, well it, it's the same. It, it, it's the same person all rolled into one. You know, it's just they're in two different countries, but they're the same person. In all seriousness, Clay, does it affect the atmosphere? I mean, are people talking about it? It must. I haven't seen it, and I'm trying not to look for it, as Shaq has just done. I didn't realise that there was such a thing there. People averting their eyes. What's been the response? Well, I don't think anything. I think they just come here to play the tournament, and it's out the front of the clubhouse, so you don't see it from the golf course, and it's just. I'll tweet you a picture of it today, Roy. It's beyond belief. Anyway, thanks. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. Let's uh, anything else on the old course? Not so much the tournament, the old course, Shack and or close Before we move on, I know we could talk about it all day. It is such an amazing place. Would have been a spiritual feeling being back there. I would have thought for you, Clates, in some ways. It was nice. I mean, the one thing I thought, Jeff, was I thought it was and it played into Johnson's strength. Was I thought it was disappointing the holes they played in the playoff. <clears throat> And you didn't. There was one shot you had to hit in that playoff, and that was the yeah. second shot to seventeen. And Johnson duffed it, and Louis hit a great shot. You know, the first hole is a bludgeon a pitch. Two is a simple hole, and eighteen is a simple hole. Sure, you had to make threes on them, but I, I thought they should have gone out to the fifteenth tee, as inconvenient as that was for the people in the stands, and played in from fifteen. That would have been a much better test. I, I just think it was. It was not much of a test playing those four holes. Yeah, yeah, I understand why they do it, it, it but uh, I think you're ended up. You're right. The way it was played out was was validated, and um, the players were out. It, by the way, we obsessed about the 17th hole. They were playing the 16th hole the same weird way. Uh, I think Louis Ustazen was the only one of the leaders who actually tried to play it down the fairway, which was uh, interesting. But it would it, those are those are better tests of golf. Those two holes and than uh, one and two. Those two are just so short now, and yeah. and like you said, they're playing right into Johnson's uh, game with the wedge, which he's brilliant at. Do we take anything, any sort of, uh, is it any sort of positive that a, a, a short hitter, for want of a better term, can still win the Open? Is that a good thing, or is it just a matter of circumstances this particular year? Well, it's a good uh, thing because, you know, because it's the most democratic course in the world, so everyone can play it. You know, I mean, John Daly can win there, and Zach Johnson can win there. And, you know, it doesn't reward anyone in particular. And, and having said that, I, mean, I thought the most shocking performance of the week was Dustin Johnson. Shocked me the way he was he was going to win that tournament. He dominated the first two days and then he just played horrible golf on the weekend for him. As much as he got reamed for what happened at Chambers Bay though, Clates, wasn't there a little bit of justice that he was kind of forgotten <laughs> in, the, in the whole affair and hasn't copped it? Yeah, he really copped it after, after the US Open at Chambers Bay. But you're right, I mean... You couldn't have got enough money on him on Friday night, could you, Shaq? Yeah. Or after round two, he was he was tailor made for the course, so to speak. Yeah, you would have I, thought. I, yeah, it was a strange thing. It seemed like he was just going to overpower the course and kind of glide around, and then, uh, well, and then okay, he throws out a not a, not a great round, and then you think, well, maybe it's just his one of three. Everybody has one round of the four that's usually not so good, but he, whatever happened there, he just. Uh, he just couldn't keep it going. And, it's actually almost a bit and, weird, isn't it, Jack? You wonder whether something might have happened. That's almost a bit weird. You know, 10 under through two rounds and then 75-75 to just completely disappear. is. You, know, you wonder whether something might have happened. It's, 
who knows uh it's possible yeah i don't know he's he's an odd odd one though it's hard to hard to read much into what he does yeah absolutely just and just finally we really should full marks and respect to zach johnson that's Two majors in tough conditions that he's won. That's a pretty impressive. He's a gritty competitor, isn't he? He hasn't got the most flamboyant sort of game or the most spectacular to watch, Shaq, but uh, you can't question his uh, his talent and his determination, can you? That's pretty impressive no. stuff. No, he can be really ugly at times, and you always think, well, that's he's he's had his run, he's <laughs> he's done. It was a nice run, and then he, he puts together little streaks like that, and uh, and there's nothing, and that's admirable. It's great. Good for yeah, him. That, that my shot with uh, Steve Williams a couple of months ago. I don't know whether you read it, Jeff, but there's a couple of really interesting things he said about there about other players. And he mentioned Johnson specifically. He said he's the one guy who hasn't got the big shots who just doesn't care. Yeah, you know, all the others at some point will try to keep up, but he never does, and that's why he's such a dangerous player, given the the sort of the lack of distance and power that he brings to the game. It was an interesting observation and interesting to see that. Johnson's gone on to win it. Let's move on from the old course and from the open because, of course, you two have both been on a bit of a journey over there in Scotland. I'll start with you, Shaq. You arrived just in time to not get your clubs and miss a beautiful evening round at Musselburgh. What did you get to do in Scotland? Tell me a bit about Uh, what you did away from the open course-wise and some of the people you met and some of the places you saw. Yeah, I'm writing a little post to remind people that uh, it may seem expensive, but ship the clubs. Just get them there because... The things that go on at Heathrow with golf clubs should really probably be made into a movie. Uh, they seem to take delight in either hiding them for hours at a time or uh, hurling them across the runways or dragging them or something. But, yeah, so I missed out on, on nine at, uh, late in the, on an absolutely incredible evening uh, at Musselboro, but that's okay. I walked around anyway. It was uh, beautiful to, to see that place and kind of picture all the ghosts of uh, the parks. And I actually introduced Clates uh, a few days later at the Scottish Open to, to Mungo Park, uh, who's the uh, great nephew of the Mungo Park and, and grandson of another Mungo who was a very good player. And he, he told me a lot about Musselburgh and that area and, and how that was sort of the uh, really the epicenter of early club making. And so um, I, it was fun to – kind of think back to some of those streets around there and picture what that time must have been like. But uh, I got to play uh, my favorite course, I think, on the planet, North Berwick, the the West Links on uh, uh, one round, a beautiful day. I played with uh, uh, Stephanie Way, Rue McDonald, and the secretary there, Chris. And um, But I also, the day before, played the Glen Club, which is there known as the North Berwick East Links. And just another one of these courses that nobody talks about Probably because it's it's um, not as great as the West Links, and I had driven up there before. There's a there's a little spot where that's a beautiful setting looking out over the town, and the spot you drive to used to be a golf hole, and I still haven't quite gotten the story. It was once a magnificent par three over the water, but anyway, you drive up there and you kind of look at those first four holes, and I've come to realize, and Clates has probably realized this too. You just can't judge the courses over there by the holes around the clubhouse because quite often the clubhouse is placed in a spot where uh, it was more of convenience and then the ground around it's not so great. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, we got out and played that golf course, and I wouldn't say there are any world-class holes, but there are no weak holes. Every hole is interesting, and the views are just stunning. So I, it's a place um, – yeah, I don't know if it suffers because of its name, but it's just it's just uh, the Glen Club doesn't really 
excite the senses like North Berwick East Links. <coughs> Excuse me. So I highly recommend it as, a, as an alternative right there. And it's just another amazing course in East Lothian. I imagine a lot of courses in Scotland, Clates, and probably Ireland to a lesser extent, suffer from a similar thing that you see in Melbourne, don't you, with some of those courses that are near the Royal Melbourne and the Kingston Heath, which were it not for Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath, would be uh, held up. They kind of, they fade in the light, don't they? (laughs) There's there's these wonderful facilities around the known ones that people never hear about or talk about. Just what Shaq's talking about there, you get a lot of that in Scotland. Well, we do. I mean, we've, we're at Panmure, which is a classic case of the, the, the less interesting holes around the clubhouse because you generally start in the town and you play back to the town and you go out to the more interesting land. But I walked those at one night years ago. We looked at the holes around the clubhouse at Panmure on the way home from dinner. But you get out to the Hogan's Hole, the sixth, and from, from there on, I mean, there's a tremendous golf out there. I mean, it's just it's everywhere over here, really. Just run Amazing. through a list quickly, Clates, of the courses you have seen so far this trip. Uh, Gallon, Muirfield, North Berwick, Pamir, Canoes to the old course. Then we drove down to or Woodley, Ganton, Knotts, which was amazing, uh, Worlington, Royal Wellington, and then we did Sunningdale, New and Old, Berkshire, Red and Blue, uh, Woking, Swinley Forest, which is more incredible every time I see it. I mean, Jeff thinks North Berwick's his favourite or best course on the planet. Swinley Forest is, for me, might be the perfect course, par 68 or 9. You know, it's, they put some back tees in, so it's more than 6,000 yards now, but it shows how you can have great golf at a, 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 a sensible length. And then back up to Turnbury, and we played, we played nine holes at Presswick last night, so I'm, I'm going to go back there and see the rest of that. But, you know, anyone who complains about blind holes needs to go and see the Alps hole at Presswick, which is the most amazing thing. I mean, McDonald did a good <laughs> job of replicating the craziness of the Alps Hole at Preswick when he did the Alps Hole at the National Golf Links. But, wow, I mean, what an amazing hole that is. And I mean, you know, I've seen so much stuff now that over here that – and Ashley, Ashley Mead, one of the partners in the business, came over and first time ever, and he was shocked at how many things – and every single course had things that you could not get away with in Australia because of mm. the complaining mentality of the bad player who wants to score. So, you know, it's really struck me more than ever how in Australia the game's been hijacked by bad players who think that every course and every feature should be playable when you go to places like North Berwick with that blind burn in front of the green at the seventh, Jeff, and the, yeah. you know, the, you know, the, the, the bunkers in the face of the hill at the Redan Hole and the 16th green and the, you know, the burns at Carnoustie and, and the blind burn on the 12th at Panmure and 12 or 11, I can't remember, 12, I think. Yeah, and, you know, just everywhere there are features that you would not get away with in Australia and America where people think the game should be fair. But, yeah, you know, yeah the game's almost been hyped. Certainly in Australia it's been hijacked by bad players who think that every, every feature should be playable. And, you know, I'm even less tolerant of, you know, I was talking to Ashley about that day. You know, we've been hijacked by people who don't even have enough respect for the game to learn how to hold the club properly. And they can't play, and they just moan. And, and, and over here, man, you get nothing over here. You you better play. And 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 if you can't play, that's fine. But don't you know they've never lost the sporting instinct and uh, and the feeling of the sport of the game. And you know, no, no better epitomised by the upside of Presswick, which which was just wild and crazy and brilliant. And 
but but not playable for a bad player. But to hell with it. You know, I mean, you would never find a more playable hole than the 18th at Presswick. You know, it's a short, drivable par four with lots of space, and you can bump it on the fairway and put it on the green from 100 yards away. But you know, you better get your clubs out at 17. Is it? There's some some huge points brought up there, Shaq, by Clates more generally, broadly about the game. But is it possible, Clates, to sort of man make some of that stuff and have it still work? My recollection has been 18 years since I was in Scotland, but my recollection of uh, particularly at Presswick, as you're talking about there, is that it would be almost impossible to replicate some of the things you see there because they have evolved. And no matter how hard you try, who was it that said, you know, no matter how hard you try, you can never build a rock and make it actually look like a rock. No, yeah, and then, you know, I mean, people people complain about the first hole at Sandridge Beach where the you know Doug tucked a green behind a sand dune. I mean, seriously, I mean, you c- come and play golf in Scotland and then go back to Australia and complain about the seventh at Kingston Heath or the first at Sandridge Beach. Or, I mean, seriously, I mean, it's just it's it, it, dumbed down is the wrong word, but I mean, you know, those features aren't in, aren't even remotely close to the. The, the sporting crazy stuff that's over here that's brilliant. And I mean, Doak had a great point about going back to the changes at St Andrews. Frank Nobolo brought it up, I think, on the Golf Channel. Doak's comment about the, the moguls at the second green at St Andrews, the bunkers on 12, and the mountain in front of four as three examples of features that were beyond the imagination of the human designer. No designer would design that. No human. And, and the, the changes to the old course, he, he made the point that no one would design that. But for the first time ever, man now thinks he's smarter than the golf course. And I don't think anyone summed up why changing the old course is such a bad idea. Better than that. that, that I mean, no human could come up with these features. You know, the fifth at Presswick, the blind shot over the dune. And, I mean, you just couldn't build that hole now. But, and no one would do it. But, you know, he's pointed about, you know, for the first time ever, man now thinks he's smarter than the course. And, but you know, the game is so sanitised now by the fair crowd who want to score and don't want their you know nice smooth um, threes and fours and fives disrupted by a blind shot where they might go in the wrong place and make an eight. Shaq, is is Clates onto something here? Does the game need to be more difficult? Is this what he's saying? <laughs> is it not hard? No. Or is it not interesting no. enough? Is that more? It needs to feel like uh, when. Uh, it needs, it needs to feel natural. I mean, this is what yeah. Max Baer uh, spent all this time trying to write these long sort of uh, tortured uh, essays. And, and his point was always a very – it was the same point over and over again. If it looks natural, feels natural, no matter how crazy it is, people will embrace it. If it feels like man is trying to get in your way of, of posting a good score and some person is there – uh, trying to pull the strings and make you miserable, you will reject it, and it, it still always comes back to that. And 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 I think he was. You think of those golf courses there, and other than really the road hole bunker on the old course, as as Bear pointed out, most of the features there were accidental, or um, or the widening is by Tom uh, old Tom Morris, but. The contours, the everything about it uh, was pretty much accidental, and so people embrace it because they kind of, they may not know exactly the history of the course, but they have some sense of that that's how it came about. And same with the other links, and and then there's also the element of way they play the game to right clates the alternate shot element yeah. playing foursomes and 
being a little less obsessed with with uh, handicaps, right? That has uh, to play some role. Yeah, and I'm not saying making it more difficult because those courses, you know, they're not particularly, apart from Carnoustie, they're not particularly difficult courses. There are just holes and features that you have to deal with that today, certainly in Australia, people would think, yeah, that that's too, you know, the course has to be playable for everybody. We're all standards of players. Well, I mean, these courses are incredibly playable, but it doesn't mean they don't build holes that are not playable for people who can't hold the club properly or can't hit you know, a decent shot or, 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 or who can't think their way around the golf course. So, you know, we, we in Australia and America make the courses more difficult by just making them narrow and growing rough. But here it's, you know, they've got width and space and they rely on the wind and if there's no wind, the course is easy. And, but, there's, you know, there's so many features that you just would not get away with if building now because there would be howls of complaint. And the first at St Andrews Beach, but, I mean, most people won't know that hole, but, you know, it's a par five with a green behind a dune and, Everyone who plays that golf course, almost everyone complains about that hole. You know, it's a blind, you know, if you can't hit it far enough, it's a blind pitch across the sand gym. Well, I play North Berwick, and I mean, you play that shot all day, you wouldn't even blink about that shot. I think, though, too, don't you, Clates, that modern architects are at a disadvantage in that everybody knows now that you can just move something and, and yeah. move a mound. Or, whereas old Tom Morris is like, hey, he just wanted to put the green on the other side of that dune, so he did. and. There wasn't a whole, he was really designing the first course there, and he didn't have a bulldozer, so ah, you know, it's okay. But when Doak doesn't put a green in a spot that can be viewed, it's like, well, hey, you have bulldozers at your uh, disposal. Why didn't you just move this thing? And I and I, it may be impossible to replicate that kind of era of design. Yeah, well, it's just I don't know. You know they, it's, it's, well, it was the original game where, where it was a sport, and they didn't they played matches and they scored. You know, it wasn't scoring wasn't the point of the game so much as you know, playing matches against each other, and so it didn't. Yeah. You know, that sort of every every time you go out there was the, was with a card, and you have to score. And I mean, you can destroy your game with the fifth hole at Prestwick if you can't get over the junior, you just don't find the ball. Yeah. You know, but well, well, I mean, how much fun to play it is it? I mean, it's just. Crazy hole, but great. I suppose part of that, Clates, is if, when you do succeed. If the, the the greater the challenge, the more um, the more satisfying the success. I suppose there's an element of that. There's a real incentive to improve, isn't there? Where of course, what we do with modern golf courses, nobody ever complains about huge long water carry par threes, do they? They're, they're considered wonderful golf holes and signature holes, aren't they? The whole island green at Sawgrass sort of thing. That's the modern version of sort of the hard hole. Everyone accepts that as good, yet. You know, the penal nature of those holes is, is I mean, the 17th of Sawgrass is an awful golf hole, isn't it? Really? Well, it's a, it's brought some great, yeah, I mean, it's not the whole, but, you know, and as, as Dye said, he said, you know, I get typecast as building Highland Greens. I only built two of my whole life. But, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, he, he was going to cut half the lake out and his wife suggested cutting the whole thing out and sticking it, making an Island Green and, look, you know, look, it is what it is, but. Well, it's for the for the market it's built for, for that four days a year, which is purpose-built for, it, it works. But unfortunately, people try to replicate it all over the place and you get these silly sort of yeah. island greens around the place. Shaq, you probably noticed, and I know I know, just listening to Clade's talk, your view of golf changes and you re-fall in love with the game when you go to Scotland, don't you? For all sorts of reasons beyond just the golf courses, there's a whole culture of the game in Scotland, which is certainly different here to here in Australia and I assume different to America. Do you find that when you go back to Scotland? I do, and I guess that's why I got, I got a little discouraged. Uh, every conversation we had in St. Andrews, 
um, kind of towards the end of the tournament or, or somewhere around there, you, you know, of course you go around the town and you run into people or you, you start, everybody just kind of naturally has a conversation. You can tell who are golfers and that alone is, is great fun. I mean, a couple nights I didn't have a uh, dinner, uh, date with my uh, various colleagues. So I just go out for a walk and, and both times, sure enough, I ran into people I know and then, Hey, let's go eat. And there's just, there's this amazing air of, of community um, but that said, uh, it was, it was, I'll be blunt. I mean, it was depressing how many times you'd just go, uh, they, you'd say, well, where are you playing tomorrow? Oh, Kings Barnes. Like, uh, yeah, what about Crail? Is that on your, uh, Crail. Now, which one is that? And you're like, ah, it's that one that's been here since the 1700s. And, um, there, there is, um, I mean, it, it, People are still getting the essence of, of kind of that vibe of, of the game and the community of it, but it does depress me a little bit how many want to go and then just have go play some course that just beats them up. I mean, at Crail, I went there, and I didn't play the old course. I wanted to play Gil Hans's course, and which is beautiful and, and fun in its own right and very pleasant, enjoyable golf. But even in the parking lot after, I ran into the, some people who came in at the same time I did, and you say, "Well, what'd you, what'd you think?" And uh, well, you know, it's just really short. You know, it's kind of like really, you know, it's an absolutely stunning day. This beautiful setting, Crail. If you've been there, just amazing place. And you hear that, and and it does. It, maybe when they get home, they'll they'll kind of think about it a little bit more, and they'll see it in the context of the other courses they play, and realize. Wow, now that's the course that I could play every day and and never get tired of. Whereas, uh, I don't need to ever go back to the Castle Course or or Kings Barnes again, or or even maybe even Carnoustie. But um, so it, it is amazing to me still how many people go there and the priority is to check off the name courses. And I get it, I do get that, but they're missing out on so much more in terms of. Um, the experience, the people you meet at the at the Crails and the Ely's and the North Barracks of the world, and and in the towns connected to them. I mean, the town of Crail, the town of Kingsbarns. I can't imagine many people play Kingsbarns stop in that town and their tour bus. They probably just ride, drive on through. And you know, I stopped in the town of Crail, and they have a golf themed pub there in town, and and went in there and and had a pint quickly, and and just kind of took it all in and it's just that to me is as much a part of the experience as anything and and i see a lot of people not getting that part of the experience and they're still having a great time but i think they'd have an even better time if they they soaked up a few more of those little things something something that rue mcdonald always talks about on the scottish golf podcast yes the mistake people make is they they've got this list of names courses it's a mistake we made when we went in 97 there's a list of names courses when you come from afar you feel like you've got to tick them off but Everywhere we went, Clates, in Scotland, back in 97, it, we would play, you know, the name course, be it the old course, whatever. and every time you'd run into someone in the town and say, yeah, it's not bad, but you should play the joint down the road that no one's yeah. heard of. It's three times better. <laughs> Everywhere we went, we got that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we had friends who were going up to Dornock and they'd never heard of Brora. I said, you have to go to Brora. I mean, don't go to Dornock and don't go all that way up there and not bother to go the extra 20 miles to go to Brora because it's, you know, it's 40 quid and it's, so, I mean, almost the rule over here is if you're paying more than 100 pounds, don't play. They're going, f- because there's always something great for less than 100 pounds, which is still a lot. But, I mean, I mean, Knott's, which I'd never been to before, Hollingwood, what a brilliant course in the, you know, in the middle of England there. And just, I mean, no one, well, I mean, 
a few tourists, I guess, go there who know about it. But, you know, it's not one of those courses you go to, but it's brilliant English golf. It's fantastic. And, you know, in Ganton and all Woodley and all those places through England, there's is, is some incredible golf over here. Amazing, really. Of course, we just saw the senior open at Sunningdale, which was an absolute joy to watch. Uh, just such a different sort of golf, isn't it? I mean, different to the old course even, but just such a different sort of golf that you get to witness. Yeah. I was there on Thursday. I mean, I, was, well, I wasn't amazed, but the, the crowds were terrific there. I mean, it was a great atmosphere there. That's a, very, of, that's a golf club, though, a yeah. genuine golfer's area. I mean, people would come out to watch the couples and the langers and the yeah, I mean, fowlers, wouldn't they? I mean, it's, you know, that's... Lots of good players there and great, easy to watch and a beautiful course. And yeah, I mean, just a tremendous tournament there, really. Absolutely. Of all those places you've been naming in England, uh, is Swindley Forest the only one that's kind of hard to, to get on for somebody if well, they're trying to write letters and write emails well, to secretaries? I, mean, I, just, I mean, Swindley has that reputation. I, they couldn't have been nicer. Oh, three years ago, I drove up there. I drove up to the gate and, and there's a gate that pe- people kind of stop six feet short of the gate and it doesn't open. And if you know, you drive right to the gate, you drive within a foot of it, it opens. And I walked in, I knocked on the door of the secretary's office and I said, and there was a woman there and I said, you know, my claim from Australia, I'm a golf course architect, would it be a problem if I walked around the golf course? She looked at me and said, why would that be a problem? I'll let them know you're out there so they don't annoy you. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> My experience of Swinley Forest was has always been incredibly welcoming, and maybe because I'm lucky, and perhaps because I was a player or whatever. But uh, I mean, just you know, it's got that reputation, so people don't go there. But uh, mm. you know, I mean, they've always been tremendous to us, and and, and to me, it's. I mean, the, the, the more I see that course, I mean. Jeff Ogilvy says, you know, it's my favourite course in the world because I can go and play there with my dad, and we can both have a great time. Because there are plenty of shots for him to hit, and his dad can bump it around, and you know it's a it's one of the most beautiful places in the world to play golf. I think. Of course, you probably won't be welcomed back with open arms now that you've given away the secret of the gate clates. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they all come storming in saying, "Clate told people us how to get in." People can't find the golf course because there are no signs. You you have to know about the red post box on the corner. You, you know, if you don't know the red post box in the corner, you can't find the golf course. But well, you can if you've got Tom Tom now, I suppose. But but it, yeah, look, I've always found them incredibly welcoming and a tremendous place to go. And Talk, tell me a bit about the course, Clates. What's so special about it? What is it about the collection of holes or the nature of the holes that, that's made you fall so in love with the place? Well, the, well, it's short, but it's difficult and, and it's wide. And, and, and of course, the, the feature of all the English courses are the beautiful roughs. I mean, we don't have any hardly any decent rough in Australia. There's a bit of heath on the on some of the sandbelt courses, but you know, the beautiful expanse. Expanses of heather and grasses, and, and the texture and the feel and the look of the roughs, and the, I mean, and people talk about metropolitan having the best fairways in the world. I mean, the best fairways in the world are over here by far because they're perfect fairways to play golf from. And every lie is a little different, and will be a little cuppy, or the sand is a little not quite even, or the, you know, it's a bit browned off if it's a high patch, or it's a bit, you know, softer and wetter in the low spots. But it's such beautiful turf to hit the ball off and. And, you know, the, the courses are big and wide. And, and people think that I hate trees, which is a stupid reputation of, you know, we've gutted in Australia because we've cut a bunch of trees down. But, you know, my answer is going to be, well, how come I walked around 20 courses in Britain in the, in the last three weeks? 
and we saw less than 20 trees we would cut down because the golf is wide, the trees are miles away from the golf. It's all about the hazards on the ground. So they understand over here perfectly how to use trees, and trees are a part of the game on the inland courses, but they keep them miles away from the golf, and you know, there's no work for a chainsaw over here. So you know, there are courses in Australia where I can literally go and you can find 20 trees a hole to cut down, and it's always an argument. And you come over here and say, well, where, where do you cut the trees down here? Well, you don't because they've kept the trees away from the golf. And, and they get it, you know, but it's a, you know, it's, it's, and, and Swinley's got great holes. Colt built five of the best, I think, the best collection of par threes on, on any course in the world. Um, you know, lots of long, difficult par fours where you've got to hit, think about what you're doing and hit great shots and a bunch of great short fours and, the whole combination of the whole thing is perfect, really, and and just, and just the heather and the you know the, the roughs are beautiful, and you know, and, and you don't see a house out there, and it's quiet, and it's and the course is not busy, and and, and not a you, know, you can't imagine anyone going out there in a golf cart, or you know, it just it just doesn't happen. You know? So so the courses aren't compromised by having to where's the cart path going to go? You know, where's the traffic going to go? And, you know, it's an issue in Australia now. You know, you, you, where where are the carts going to go? It's just a horrific. A departure from what the game is over here. Of course, courses and clubs weren't built as financial concerns, were they, Clates? Uh, there were clubs for people to enjoy as a recreation. There is always the financial imperative in the modern yeah. era when you go to build a golf course. It's a business and it needs to make money. It's all yeah. this other stuff. You know, if the bean counters had been in charge, Clates, you know Barn Boogle would never have been built, don't you? No uh, accountant yeah. in the world would have said, this is a good idea. This is not going to yeah. happen. So Yeah. I you know, and, and as perfect as the land around the coast here in Scotland is for golf, it, so, so is, is the land around the Heathlands in London, that, that southwest. So perfect is that land for, you know, it's inland golf and there's there are trees on it, but it's just perfect land for golf. It, 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 and they built, you know, I, I, perhaps the best collection of golf courses in the world. I mean, certainly it's miles ahead of the sandbelt. You know, I mean, perhaps Royal Melbourne is a better course than anything over here on the Heathlands, but. You know, the courses down from that over here are just, and there are reams of them that are just brilliant places to play golf. It reminds you, Shaq, doesn't it? We get caught up in the business of the golf. I'm just listening to Clates there, and the, the passion and the enthusiasm is just so obvious, isn't it? It's all the stuff you forget when you get involved in the day to day grind of following professional golf and writing about the game and all. You forget sometimes, don't you? That at its core, that, you know, this wonderful time Clates is having, that's really what golf's great gift is, isn't it? Yeah, we're way too consumed with the professional game, um, and it just is the nature of the beast at the moment. But um, I, I know, like when I go over there and I do posts about other golf courses, that's the stuff that people respond to more. In part because they may someday make a trip there, and they like hearing about it. But often it's 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 usually just uh, people are just excited to hear about these places in the game. Um, that they don't know about, or maybe they heard about, and they get to hear a little bit more, and and to know that that there are these places that are uh, taking care of their course and and um, providing uh, the, the game in a little simpler way uh, than what we see being exported to Asia, for instance, right now, or what um, or what what they've experienced from golf architects over the last. 20, 30 years and, and architects and developers. I, I mean, I think that uh, the beauty of all having all that there and being maintained the way it is and the way it has been for a long time is that it's uh, 
we have something to point to always that 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 and that's great because um i think my takeaway and going over there and and seeing some of these places and and getting back into it is you just you you realize uh well what you learn you you learn a lot about the people who started the game and the vision they had and what what characters they were you know just hearing about willie park and mungo park and and old tom uh and then you also realize this last 30 or so years of architecture development, uh, mostly driven by the golf ball, but also just, just bad taste and incompetence and, and uh, not going into those – people not going to those places and appreciating what will make them permanent uh, or what makes a great golf course permanent. Uh, <clears throat> you realize we, we've just – we've been in a very – dark time in terms of course design and development and uh, a lot of money wasted and, and great sites ruined um, yeah and um, sorry I'm, I, I was moment distracted because I, you know, I think also Jeff you, you would have to look at the work Gill's done and Doak and Corin Crenshaw I mean, but there have been some beautiful courses built in the last 30 years also but you know, but by guys like Mike Kaiser, who are not interested in making money or selling houses, but are going back to the spirit of the game, where, where you, they're building pure golf. And Bamboogle is an example of that. Bandon, Cabot Links, Sandhills, all those great places have been built. You know, all the bad stuff's been done on the back of trying to make money out of it. The game, really. Yeah, yeah, and and we also have. I, I think Pete Dye deserves credit, even though I don't yeah. think his work reflects what you find over there. He did force people to. Uh, go back and look at those places, and so people like Mike Kaiser and Tom Doak and Gil Hans and and all those people you mentioned uh, have either taken their inspiration or already were inspired, and now have that to to point to as what inspires their work. and And it really started with Pete Dye seeing what Robert Trent Jones was doing, and then going over there and experiencing it. And you know, he imported his weird, wacky way of doing it, which is great, and it was eye opening. and um, and I think that ultimately is always going to be his greatest legacy, not necessarily that his courses were really that fun to play, but that he, that he awakened everybody. Yeah. And, you know, Rod, you know how the, the, the clubs are struggling in Australia and the clubs that are, you know, teetering and some closing and some moving. And, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them, you look at them and you, you compare them to the golf over here and they just rank bad golf courses that, were, you know, the game would be, frankly, better off without because it, it will consolidate memberships into a fewer kind of collective of clubs that need more members. And so, so you know, it, I think you can really make a good argument that it's a good thing that clubs are closing down because they rank bad golf courses. And over here, no one would ever go to them because there's, you know, there's way too much competition over here for them to survive. And, you know, it's, a, it's not a bad thing in many cases, I think. There's certainly... There's a there's a natural market correction happening in Australia, isn't there, Clades? Yeah. Uh, of an oversupply yeah. of golf courses. Not all bad golf courses are going to close, but you would think that most of the courses that do merge or move or close, for the most part, will be the sort of lesser facilities. I mean, it, the world and people have changed so much too, though, haven't they, Clades? And it, it keeps on striking me what Jeff said to us when he was on the show recently. Jeff Ogilvie is that you know he finally figured out the the game doesn't change. It's only us that yeah. changes, and that's true of golf courses as well. And people don't seek out the same form of legend but don't want to be a member at a golf club and play the one golf course all the time there's a lot of factors impacting this stuff well certainly here in australia um we don't have the population to maybe sustain 
clubs the way they are, they have been in the ones you're talking about around London and Scotland there. But there's other factors impacting, and I wonder what percentage of people in this day and age really feel that spirit of the game that you've mentioned. It sounds corny and wanky and all the rest of it, but mm. there's a genuine and real spiritual experience in Scotland yeah. and those places, isn't there? It, it's a real right. thing. And Mackenzie was right about why people give up golf or because the courses are no good. And, you know, if you can't get inspired playing golf over here and the beauty and the, and the, and the expanse of all over the country, the number of incredible courses. It's, but but in, in, in fairness, the game's not probably doing that well here either. But, but clubs are – the thing that struck me, one small thing that struck me about because we, we emailed with the secretaries who, who are not called general managers, they're still called secretaries. And you go to these, you know, you go to these little secretaries' offices, all these clubs, and, the, and there's one woman working there, and there's one secretary manager who's probably not getting his paid as much as they are in Australia. And you know, it's a it's a much cheaper, more economically rational way of running golf clubs. They don't spend as much money over here running golf clubs as they do at home, where they're often five or six people in the office and it's not a secretary anymore but a general manager who's paid a general manager's salary as opposed to a secretary's salary and, you know, it's it's different over here and it's a, probably a much more viable economic model really. We've become wedding venues with golf courses attached in fact, oh, yeah. in many cases uh, yeah. in this part of the world, haven't we? Uh, I hope you're enjoying your time there, Clates, because it's all too soon. You you get back and you sort of you forget, don't you? Just what a what a wonderful um, yeah yeah. It's, a, it's something I wish I could do. Well, I could you know every year. I mean, if everyone was lucky enough to come and do what I've done the last few weeks, that they would have just a, a ball coming over here and playing golf. Have you played all those courses, Clates, or mostly just walked them? No, I, I haven't. Well, I played. I actually hit some shots with Sue's clubs last night at Preswick, but no, we've just walked them all. We've just been out. Well, we took, you know, it took us two days to get from Scotland to London through uh, all Woodley, Gant, Knotts and Hollywood, um, Wellington. So, so it's lots of driving and, you, don't, you know, it's, I'm perfectly happy just walking them and taking pictures and talking. Ashley was over here with me, so, so we spent a lot of time talking about them. And you, know, you, and you talk to the people you go through on the way around and, you know, it's um, – it's and the one course you mentioned was Woking. We went to Woking, which is you know, one of my favourites as well. Just a, you know another tremendous golf course. So they're everywhere, and 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 people I think who Americans probably Jeff more than Australians. That they tend to gravitate to Scotland, where there's so much great golf in England. Yeah, for sure. Most most Americans don't think a whole lot about golf trips to England. <laughs> yeah. I think what we which is understandable. Is, yeah. Well, it doesn't if you, have the same reputation, has it? It's a different thing, England. It is, and and it, there's just something magical about the concept of Scotland. And if you're only going to make one trip, and, and you have to do the ones, you have to see the big ones. And I understand that. Um, uh, that said, my dad just mentioned today he's got, he's with a group there through Golf Club Atlas. They're going to all sorts of great off the beaten track spots in England and. Um, it's a pretty, pretty stellar. There's so many. There's just so many places to choose from. By the way, Clayton, before I forget, how was Al Woodley? Uh, they've done work there on in Alistair McKenzie's uh, earliest 18-hole uh, design, I believe. Well, they're all fiddling with all the clubs seem to be fiddling with bunkers over here, which is not. Um, they're not doing as well as the old guys. Finn Fennis. They all seem to look the same. There's wavy kind of top lines on the bunkers that are very uh -huh. quick. Cookie cutterish, and you know, there's some. There's been a little bit of work at the Berkshire that certainly 
doesn't look like Fowler's original work. And so it's, you know, they're, they're dangerous things to mess with over here, these courses, mm. I think. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's, I mean, a, a terrific course, you know, great routing. And the clubhouse was in an odd spot. So the only way to route the golf course was to take the ninth or tenth hole out to the farthest point in the course. And the third hole plays directly across the 16th fairway. So just, just a straight crossover, and, and, and you know, and you get out there, and it's just again. I mean, why? You know, the isolationists, Jeff, our, our favourite people who want to isolate themselves from one one from another, and not hear, not see another hole or another course, need to come yeah. over here and see, see how beautiful golf is when you see across the whole <laughs> golf. Course. You see yeah. the holes from completely different angles and places and views and you see people across the whole golf course. I mean, there's no sense ever of isolating one from another over here. It's just that insane concept that people seem to have in Australia that somehow <laughs> well, they it's play. It's not just Australia. Well, yeah. You know, somehow they played a golf course somewhere where you couldn't see another hole and they, and they liked it and they decided that was a concept worthy of emulation where, you know, just – I mean, every single course over here, there are wild, you know, huge, expansive views over the properties, and it adds so much to the game. You know, you, you know if you isolated one hole from another over here, you would destroy the game because it's, you know, it, it, it might be the single greatest part of the game here is the expansive views on all the courses you see and all you know, the different places you see the holes from and how you can watch people play golf on another hole and, you know, just the things that the isolationists never understand and don't get. You know, it's just, to me, it's just an incredibly selfish view of the game, how the game should be. It's just not how it's supposed to be. I could listen to you all day, Clates, and you could probably go all day if we let you, but we'll probably wrap it up soon. Before we go, Shaq, I wanted to find out from you, did you get the opportunity to walk a few holes of tournament golf with Clates and be exposed to his magnificent running commentary, and how did you enjoy the experience? I had a whole summer of it here in Australia. It was fantastic. How did you enjoy it? Uh, we just did a few holes with Jeff Ogilvy on Sunday. Uh, excuse me, on Monday at the Open, and uh, we were we were going on on various things, and then we, we ran into some people, and we uh, we we were fighting off rain. and But, yes, we, we had an enjoyable, enjoyable chat. I probably should have forced him to just do – total commentary on on jeff he was playing well he was playing with luke donald who was playing great and gonna have another one of his backdoor uh, top tens and uh, which is nice to see him playing well again mm, yes indeed but and jeff is playing beautifully i mean he uh he, he really had a, a nice week there and, he's and right uh, there, i saw isn't he? he really is he right is there. his attitude everything is great there's, there's just a couple of bad holes per, per tournament yeah. i mean he was what six under through 14 clates on day one and he was yeah. six, under through, six under through 12 and in fairness and the, you know the, those holes you weren't going to hold that coming in but it, he finished up 71 instead of you know 69 would have been a good score if you, if, if you dropped three coming in from the from the 13th tee would have been a decent result he made you know he made a bad terrible seven at 14 and and then he shot a, the best round I've seen him play on Friday. He shot 68. He played a beautiful round on Friday. And then 72s in the weekend, which was kind of disappointing, really. Just, just too many kind of silly mistakes. And, but he's... Um, There's yeah, something he's, there. He's, he's going to win something soon. I'm convinced of it. Yeah. Um, I really like the way he's talking and he seems very yeah. relaxed. And we chatted to him down at Peninsula Clades. And he just everything about his demeanour all feels really positive, doesn't it? And the, the game is yeah. right there, it seems. So. Yeah. Um, 
would be uh, terrific to see. Well, I think we've proved one thing, if nothing else, today, Clates. You are genuinely a certifiable golf nut to have walked all of those golf courses and barely swung a club. I can't think of too many who would do it, but not only do you do it, you do it with enthusiasm and gusto. It's been fabulous to uh, catch up with you today, mate. Thanks for some time. Look forward to seeing you on the coverage, hopefully, over the weekend with Sue at, uh, at Turnby. It'd be great if she could get in the mix. Yeah, it would be good. So the course is good this week. It's the last time anyone's going to play this golf course because they're going to blow it up on whenever, soon. But, um, you know, it's not my favourite open venue, but it's a, it's, a, it's a good one, really good. Well, it's a- it always produces great finishes, uh, it's maybe yeah. better than any course, really. Yeah, it does. Yeah, they've always been great here. Fountain aside, it's one of the great settings, isn't it, with the hotel up there and the pitch and putt course down the front. If I recall, wasn't Jeff there the first time we spoke to him on State of the Game? 20. Yes, he was. He was staying there with his mates, and he just walked off the pitch and putt course when we got. We him did. We dragged him away from that, which yeah. was we felt bad about. Yeah, that's right. Not for long, but uh, we did feel bad about it for a bit. So yeah, yeah it'll be uh, it'll be terrific to watch that unfold this week, Clates. Best of luck. Thanks for taking some time today. And Shaq, as always, to you. A million things we haven't touched on, but one thing we do know, apart from Clates being a golf nut, we're going to get Rue McDonald on the show because he does a terrific podcast, and he'll be great to talk to. I know you played golf with him, so. Uh, we must collar him for the next one. But thank you for some time today as well. All right. Thank you. And that wraps it up for finally for episode 59 of State of the Game. It was a big one, but hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we look forward to your company next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com. Dot com.